The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Good afternoon and, and welcome to this uh, event celebrating the publication of John Scattergood's catalogue of manuscripts containing Middle English and some Old English at Trinity. I'm Dr Mark Fulton, I'm Usher Assistant Professor in Medieval Literature in the School of English and this is an event co-organised by the Long Room Hub, the Library and the Manuscript Book and Print Cultures Research theme. Involved uh, today uh, in what's going to be a, a three-way conversation are me, uh, Neve Patwell, who's Associate Professor of um, Medieval English at UCD, and my colleague Brendan O'Connell from the School of English at Trinity. And we'll also have a short video from Emma Williams, who's now Senior Vice President of Microsoft in Seattle, but worked with John at a very early stage of the compilation of this catalogue. There's an offer uh, from Four Courts to buy the book at a 28% discount and an overall price of 40 euro, which Francesca will share in the chat uh, with you and also circulate via email after the event. Um, and so you can get a, a hold of a copy if uh, this enthuses you for what is really a wonderfully rich uh, account of the very numerous Middle English manuscripts at Trinity. We'll begin um, the one hour session with a, a retrospect on John's career at Trinity. Um, then we'll talk about the range of manuscripts in the collection and some of our personal highlights. Uh, Neve and then Emma will also reflect on the process of producing the catalogue with John. And then we'll finally talk about its potential to inspire future teaching and research on these manuscripts. There'll then be a period of about 10 minutes for questions and answers. And I'd encourage you to put any questions you might have in the Q&A function on Zoom. You can put those in at any time and we'll look at them uh, towards the end of the conversation and answer as many of them as we can in those final 10 minutes. So I think I have uh, I've covered everything unless Neve and Brendan want to add anything by way of introduction. It might be good to that John Scattergood is joining ah, us yes, of course. this afternoon. Man himself. Um, and we're hoping from his position as a guest in the audience uh, he might at some stage join in the conversation. Um, there are varying reasons. So, John, I know you're out there. I hope that you join the conversation at some stage. Thank you for that reminder. So the man, the man himself is here. And that leads me nicely into a little bit of a retrospect of John's career and time at Trinity. Um, he's been publishing on Middle English uh, for 57 years, which is quite an extraordinary fact. Um, he, he came to Trinity in 1981 uh, as Professor of Medieval and Renaissance English uh, after having spent 26 years working in the University of Bristol. Uh, and at Trinity, he had a, an extraordinary career um, as well as being a, a medievalist. He was also senior lecturer uh, twice, Dean of the Faculty of Arts, senior proctor, and then after retirement, pro-chancellor, who is someone who deputizes for the chancellor whenever they are unavailable. His uh, published work is uh, extraordinary in, in range and depth. Um, his first book, Politics and Poetry in the 15th Century, came out in 1971. He's edited the works of Clan Vow and Skelton, 
also publishing extensively on Skelton, including most recently a critical companion co-edited with Sebastian Sobecki. Uh, and he's also published three volumes of collected essays, The Lost Tradition, which came out in the year 2000, Manuscripts and Ghosts in 2006, and Occasions for Writing in 2010. And beyond this, there's no narrowness to John because he's also published on the English country house poem in the 17th century, the works of Philip Larkin, and I think some of his own poetry, unless I'm misreading his uh, entry on the, the Trinity research system wrongly. It's an extraordinary range there. Um, both Brendan and Neve were supervised by John for their PhDs, so they know him very well. I've only really met him since I arrived in 2016, though his fame to a certain extent preceded him and that when I did my master's, I was um, studying with someone who was very influenced by John. So I, I already kind of knew of him by reputation. And then I became friends with Francis Lenahan, who is in the audience today and was someone also supervised by John. So there's a, a kind of, his fame precedes him in the, in the field of medieval studies. But Brendan and Neve, you may have some reflections on, on being supervised by John. Absolutely, absolutely, we do many, uh, many happy memories, um, and I think we'll probably touch on those as we as we go through some of the the highlights of the uh, the, the collection. I think one one comment that I would just like to to, to make, I suppose, is even looking at the uh, the, the book here um, in in front of me, I'm I'm just very struck by uh, seeing not only John's name on it, but also of course Neves as a, a former PhD uh, student, and of course Emma Williams as well from a number of years ago and I, I think that's one of the great uh, tributes that I think we can highlight today is that I suppose the importance of of this kind of continuing work with this vast uh, vast collection uh, and work that's continuing across uh, generations of scholars and will continue into the future. Thanks Brendan um, and actually there is a sense of being part of a community of John's uh, uh, postgraduate students you know, you meet people, um, I'm thinking of Tina Carney in Galway, Francis in Galway. Um, it's dangerous when I start mentioning names. Um, Anne-Marie Darcy, um, beloved of all of us over the last couple of months. Um, and, uh, you know, there's quite a community of us out there and it's kind of pleasant to meet and bump into each other. But I presume that is probably true of most uh, groups of PhD students. Um, it's kind of difficult to pick out specific moments I think I have that sense of the vastness of his knowledge. Ask him a question and he pauses and it's ponderous and then it comes. Um, and I might, might come back to that point again at a later stage in terms of working on the catalogue. Um, I suppose I'm also conscious of, uh, I'm remembering actually as we're speaking and partly prompted Brendan by the image of uh, Trinity College behind you here this afternoon. I'm remembering the farewell to John when John was finishing up in Trinity um, and asking him about that sense of pr proliferation and that ability to work and to produce work uh, even as he was busy with other administrative duties etc. And I think the, the thing that stands out for me and that I've tried to uh, take on board is the, you know, leave a sentence, leave a paragraph, um, almost ready to come back to it. And uh, just that sense of kind of practically uh, able to handle the research side uh, and at the same time, you know, keep, keep life going despite all these other onerous duties um, as it were. 
thanks uh, both uh, Neve and, and, and Brendan. And we'll probably uh, hear more about the process of working on the catalogue as, as we go on. Um, but I guess we want to turn now to the manuscripts themselves. Um, Trinity has a, a wonderfully rich collection of medieval manuscripts, certainly the finest in Ireland and arguably the rival of some of the bigger collections in the UK, like those in uh, Durham and Worcester cathedrals and uh, some of the Oxford College, Oxford and Cambridge College libraries. There's approximately 600 uh, medieval manuscripts in Trinity and as the catalogue shows, uh, 86 of them contain Middle English, which is a, a number that absolutely surprised me. Um, it's, it's a very high number. Um, and the, the significance of the catalogue is that it replaces the, the previous catalogue, which was published in 1900 and really has extraordinarily skeletal descriptions of all of these books. So you can simply contrast the width. Brendan already showed you the front cover. I'll just show you how fast it is um, of the book uh, to show you how de deep the coverage of these manuscripts is and the, the richness of the information they contain. And John is, is now appearing on the screen. Um, there's a, a fantastic range here as well. Um, we'll talk about some of our favorite books in uh, just a second, but there are uh, numerous religious works which derive from the fact that Usher, who contributed the bulk of the collection, was among other things, um, very heavily engaged in 16th and 17th century religious uh, polemic, uh, very large collection of Wycliffeite material, historical material, there's no less than 10 copies of the Brute Chronicle. There are also lyrics uh, embedded in Latin texts, English glosses to grammatical works, scribbles on fly leaves, uh, two major 15th century commonplace books, those of Robert Bale, who died in 1473, and his near contemporary John Bennett. Uh, so there's a fantastic range of, of material here, and it's the kind of collection that someone wanting to know what Middle English manuscripts look like could really uh, work through. What we thought that the most uh, useful way into this, though, would be would be to talk about some of the manuscripts that have captured our attention most. So I will hand over to either Neve or Brendan at this point uh, to, to talk about one of their favourites. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I might I might jump in there um, if, if that's OK with you, Neve. I know you'll have other other uh, manuscripts to talk about, but but just I suppose I want to start with uh, a manuscript, which I suppose is is well one of the most famous and certainly uh, one that uh, that that I'm sure most people, many of you uh, in the audience, will be familiar with. It's it's one of our Pierce Plowman manuscripts, and and for for those of you who in the audience who who aren't familiar with with Pierce Plowman, uh, the very very famous allegorical poem from. Uh, from the late uh, the late 14th century, one of the, the really the great works of, of Middle English literature, and certainly a kind of a rival um, with, say, the Canterbury Tales as as one of the great kind of masterpieces of, of Middle English literature. Um, and I, I first remember encountering uh, manuscript 212 when I was an undergrad here in in college and and was studying Piers uh, Piers Plowman with John as part of uh, one of his modules on 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 Middle English alliterative poetry. Um, and I remember him bringing us up to the, uh, the, the reading room in the, the library, which many of you will be familiar with, and, and him showing us manuscript 212, which of course uh, is the famous manuscript that includes the, uh, the ascription of the poem and includes the author's name and tells us that this, uh, this poem is written by, by William Langland. And, and of course, it's moments like that, those moments of kind of an encounter with a, a, a very, 
special or very famous manuscripts like like this one that, that leave a great um, impact on you uh, as a young uh, as a young scholar as a young medievalist um, thinking about what you might study in the in the future but I suppose I, I would highlight a couple of other things briefly uh, and then maybe hand over to, to Neil for her her thoughts um, because I'm, I'm always very struck when I think about the collection and I think about the work that John has done over the the, the years uh, by by the fact that that it's not just the, the big things, it's not just the big manuscripts, the kind of headline artifacts like 212, it's also these, these kind of little things that just shed a, a new light on something. So I also remember uh, as an undergraduate studying a poem like Pierce the Plowman's Creed and, and, and reading the line about cro uh, Cross and all my ABC where, where he's, uh, the narrator talks about how he's He's learned his, his ABC, and, uh, he, but he, he can't learn his creed. He can never find anyone to teach him his, his creed. Um, and I remember again, John, bringing us to the, the uh, reading room and showing us, I think it was manuscript 70, um, a kind of a Wycliffeite kind of collection of, of, of texts. And one of them being this, uh, this little alphabet there at the start, this kind of part of a kind of a primer, I suppose. Um, and uh, the, the image of the cross and the, AB, the ABC and just a little moment like that uh, to be able to see something like that and sort of see the connection between one poem and then this, this, kind, of, uh, this kind of manuscript in this, this, in this kind of Wycliffeite um, collection. And of course, I also looking at a number of other uh, texts, some of the, the Wycliffeite texts and including some of the Wycliffeite Bibles. And I remember being very struck at one moment as um, John was introducing us to some of these kind of Wycliffeite um, Bibles, perhaps 66 or, or 67, I can't remember uh, exactly, and, and kind of saying, you know, everyone comes here to look at the Book of Kells, but, but it's, it's things like these uh, Wycliffeite and Lollard uh, Bibles that are, are some of the real gems that, 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 that people don't uh, fully realise their, their, their kind of importance and how, how valuable they really are. So that's just to give some some sense of some of the things that I've I've uh, remembered and 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 gone back to over the the years. I don't know if Neil wants to uh, come in there with any comments on hers. Plus about twenty five years. <laughs> twenty five years, yes. Um, I think Brendan, what you were saying there about the small detail, actually, funnily, that was going through my own head as you were talking. And again, I might land on TCD 70, just one that I've done a bit of work on more closely. Um, as an example of that kind of small detail, you mentioned the alphabet, um, to the best of my knowledge, and I wouldn't quite quote even myself on this just yet, it's probably one of the few alphabets where you actually get Middle English lettering. Um, at the beginning of a Psalter. You get the thorn and the yog. You don't always get that at the beginning um, of Psalters. So like that in itself is, is an interesting little detail and is actually replicated in um, a manuscript that seems to have some connection with TCD 70 that I haven't quite been able to pin down yet, except that they share uh, same versions of those kind of uh, very changeable, very editable in the Middle Ages religious texts, but including that, 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 that alphabet. But there's another detail, and I think this in a way leads me to talk about the study of manuscripts as material objects. And I think to be it's fair, this is where John, 
I think this is probably where John um, is at his best. Like that description of, of uh, the, 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 the manuscripts, just as, as opposed to just the contents of them. Um, I think that he has a great feeling for telling the story of the manuscript, as it were, um, and for just kind of picking up on little details about names, provenance, um, even mannerisms or ticks nearly of a, of, a, of a scribe that kind of give us some further insight as to the origin or a little bit of history or uh, that kind of thing around the manuscript. And there's, it also leads me to say that there is nothing like the sort of contact with the book itself. There's nothing like the material, the contact with the material object. And if we even go back to TCT 70, um, I suppose one of the privileges of living so close to and, and working so close um, as in Dublin uh, to such a, a collection, and I envy those of you that can just walk across the quad <laughs> whenever you fancy, okay, as opposed to more of us who have to get on our bikes and cycle in to have a look at them. Um, that it's the repeated looking at the manuscript and what can change and shift in your understanding of it. And even if you go to TCD 70, there were specks of dirt, as I thought, um, on a few of those folios. And actually, oh, I said one day, I better check those. God, I better just check those, just in case. And when I looked more closely, I realized that they were actually colored threads. And on further examination, realized that there was quite a few of them scattered throughout the manuscript. Um, and I'm not sure, there's no guarantee that that would have come up. Some people might argue that it would have come up even better on a digital because you'd have had the close-up facility, as it were. Um, but it's just that, that uh, privilege of having contact with manuscripts and allowing them to tell you their story, allowing the bits and pieces um, to come at you and the kind of more complete picture, not just of the contents, but of the, the material object, as it were. Um, I have a few other bits and pieces that I can say, but maybe, Mark, I might let you come in there because I think what I might say next might lead towards the sort of process of the catalogue, of putting the, the, the catalogue together. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Neve. Um, I don't know if John wants to, to come in with a, a favourite. We might need Francesca to unmute him if that's the case. But we, could, we could just try and pause a moment. Okay, well, maybe we'll think about that as advance warning that that could happen in a, in a minute or two. Um, so I guess uh, one thing I was going to mention about the, the catalogue and the manuscripts is that the subtitle is a descriptive catalogue of manuscripts containing Middle English and some Old English, which is a, a rather elegant way of uh, balancing the fact that there are 81 containing Middle English and three containing Old English. Um, the Old English ones are very interesting, though. Um, there's a, a 16th century transcript of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is the, one of the fundamental sources for the history of, of the Anglo-Saxon period, and the Trinity copy contributes materially to the reconstruction of that text, and particularly its, its, ninth, its 10th and 11th century history. There's also this rather wonderful um, ex libris uh, inscription from Salisbury, which is in English, so it's a book of uh, Latin saints' lives, but someone decided that even though the saints' lives were in Latin, it should record its origin in English uh, and in the first person, so as if the book is actually talking to us across this period of a thousand years. So there's some really interesting Old English material there, and Francesca says John is now unmuted, so I'm going to hand the floor to him if he wants to talk about a manuscript that he particularly likes. Uh, can you hear me now, Mark? We can, John. Yes, go ahead. Um, 
I, 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 I like one or two manuscripts um, in particular. I, I like manuscript 75, which is a, um, a Lollard Bible and um, a Lollard New Testament with some additional texts. And you can plot the ownership of that manuscript um, which may have been written by John Purvey himself um, uh, across across the centuries, and and um, you can see how it uh, started off in in uh, Wycliffeite hands and uh, gradually got transferred in the sixteenth uh, century to um, uh, to to Protestant owners and. Um, one of the um, last owners uh, was a man called Michael Seroyan, who was um, a refugee from uh, the continent, from the University of Leuven, where he'd been trained. And um, he writes a, a, a double acrostic um, um, showing his name. Uh, a double acrostic in, 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 in Latin and talking about his um, biography. And um, a friend of mine in Leuven called Guido Latre um, uh, helped me out on, on this and he can be identified. And, and uh, I, mean, I mean, what a remarkable thing um, to happen to um, a Wycliffe manuscript. It, passes into the hands of, um, of, of, of a Belgian refugee, essentially. Uh, so I, I think that's a really valuable manuscript, but um, the one that is most valuable for, for me, I, I suppose, is manuscript 516, which is John Bennett's um, commonplace book, because it's got a it, it, it was put together, ben, Bennett is the catalogue's dream because he, um, he uh, dates and signs um, his entries and um, we know that that was put together from uh, 1440 um, to the early 1470s and um, it's, it's got an incredible um, range of things in it including a Latin chronicle but most of the material is um, uh, historical and um, political, and um, since I'm um, since I'm particularly interested in uh, political writing, that's a particular um, that's a particular valuable one for me. I, I I think possibly one of the most important ones we've got is uh, six, seven, eight, which um, is uh, a copy of the earliest translation of Thomas Akempis's Imitatio Christi, which, which is in um, Western culture, an immensely, immensely important book. And it's pretty clear that the translation was, was done by the Carthusians at Sheen. And the particular copy we've got um, has been was written out by um, 
the famous Carthusian scribe Stephen Doddisham, and not only that, um, uh, was corrected by his younger contemporary, uh, William Darker. And, um, you know, it's very rare that you can um, place a manuscript like that and, and know who the scribes are. Um, I have to say, um, uh, the late Ian Doyle worked out most of this for us, <laughs> but, but uh, Ian was a, a, a great um, supporter of this project and, um, and uh, of course I was glad to have um, his um, input. He left me a set of notes on the Trinity Manuscripts um, which, which are invaluable, except that you have to be a pretty well-trained paleographer to read them. That leads us very nicely into to thinking about how the book came about. And uh, I was really uh, fascinated to read that Ian uh, had been working on this from the uh, kind of 80s and had passed his notes to you, um, John. This might be a good point to pause there and have the video from from Emma because she talks a lot about the, the early stages of the project when, when you started yeah. in the 90s. So uh, Francesca, can I hand over to you to set the video playing for five minutes, please? After Puget Sound here on the west coast of the United States. Um, my name is Emma Williams. Um, and I'm so sorry I can't be with you today to celebrate the launch of this phenomenal catalog. Um, I'm very, very excited if you can see. I received my copy only just a few days ago from the publisher and it's been a phenomenal walk through memory lane for me to be able to page through the book and, uh, and see the amazing work. Um, that John uh, and Neve pull together. So a little bit of background on me. It's a, it's kind of an unusual story uh, that I was involved in this. Um, and then I'm talking to you from Seattle, where I am a senior corporate vice president in engineering and product at Microsoft, where I've spent um, 28 years in my uh, career. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a funny story, but I was actually an undergraduate in Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse in Trinity. Of course, John was the head of the English department. Um, I was doing my postgraduate PhD in this dragon in Scandinavian mythology. So very much focused on Old Norse, Old Icelandic and the Old Germanic languages and literature. And John asked me if I would take on a role um, funded by the Leverhulme Trust uh, around about 1990 uh, to help him as a research fellow to work on this phenomenal catalog of English manuscripts that were in the old library in Trinity. And uh, of course, I was delighted uh, to work with John on this. And um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to look at the catalog today and, uh, and realize that some of my work contributed to this. And so just to touch on that a little bit, John and I would go up to the old library and to the manuscripts library and spend time looking at some of these manuscripts. And I was often there uh, by myself all day long, you know, with white gloves on. Uh, looking at the latest manuscript, trying to decode it and figure out 
What could we learn from it in terms of provenance? What material was it made of? What watermarks were there? And of course, these were always um, super faint. So it was uh, a lot of fun to do forensic detective work to figure out the watermarks um, and to help us with provenance. And also, um, I think my favorite part of it was some of the marginalia um, that I would get to uh, look at and uh, transcribe um, some of the fun uh, comments. I, I remember some wonderful um, illuminated uh, illustrations as well, but some of the marginalia were fun, little bits of poetry, uh, little comments. Um, I remember one particular illustration of a cake cut into four quarters. Um, and uh, just a little kind of poem about the cake there as well, which was super fun. I think my favorite illustration, of course, which is in, also in the book, um, which was from manuscript 48, um, which was the first letter of the word Adam. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, stunning, illuminated illustration of a sort of half bird, half cat. And since I'm a cat person, um, I absolutely loved it. And so I'm so delighted to see that Jane Maxwell chose it uh, with John to be one of the core illustrations in the book. Um, and I think overall, um, my favorite memory of working in the manuscript library um, was this amazing moment when I would look up from some manuscript I was poring over intensely and just to see the dust motes dancing in the air in the afternoon sunshine. Uh, it's funny, I, I don't remember Ireland raining at all. I just remember my time there um, filled with sunshine. And uh, of course, I know that's just memory putting a, a rosy uh, tone on it, but it really was a beautiful experience. And one of my uh, other favorite things I think about the manuscripts where some of the other comments um, written in other languages. Um, I do remember in manuscript 174, I was so excited that there was a little bit of Anglo-Saxon because of course I was an Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse um, scholar. So those were my favorite moments. And I remember um, one that said, of Siarbury ich am, from Salisbury I am. And so that was super exciting moment uh, for me. And I'm really, really glad that John captured that in the catalog when it was published. And so all in all, I just uh, send my very best wishes to you all. I wish I could have been there with you, um, but with eight hour times difference um, and uh, you know, 5,000 miles away, it's a little difficult, but um, my heart is there with you. And um, someday when I finish my career at Microsoft, um, I know there's a bunch of really interesting Icelandic manuscripts there in the old library that I'm twitching uh, my fingers to get my hands on. And particular um, manuscript 1017, which is a medieval bestiary um, in Icelandic, and I'm pretty sure there's dragons in that as well, which would be amazing to get back to at the end of my career uh, from Microsoft. So very best wishes to you all, Jane, Neve, and John, and congratulations on the catalog. And um, uh, I look forward to staying super proud and, uh, and very happy about the work we did together. Thank you all. So that's uh, that's Emma, who uh, with Neve is one of John's two co-authors uh, on the catalogue. What I might do now is, is essentially hand the floor to, to John and Neve to talk about how the project developed and uh, came to be published. Do you want to jump in there, John? Um, yeah, 
Okay. I'll start and John, I'm sure, will come in at some stage. Um, all I'll say is that I notice uh, 2017 is mentioned as the date by which I came on board. Um, I think that's being generous. I think it goes back way longer than that. Uh, too long to actually mention without blushing as to how long I'm working on the index of Middle English prose. Um, and it became obvious at some stage, it was kind of obvious from the beginning really that as John puts it nicely in the introduction, that we had common cause um, and that it would make a lot of sense to uh, share our work, our checking, our gathering of data, etc, etc. Um, of course, he would have had more focus on the description of the manuscript than I would have. And I also have the, uh, I was going to say privilege, but maybe that's not quite right, the slight uh, disappointment maybe. I, I don't have to deal with the poetry. You get to stumble on it, but I don't actually have to spend time um, um, working on it. But I suppose for me, what I want to say about the process is, John, I don't know if you remember, and you probably still have them, but the boxes you handed over um, real old-fashioned kind of boxes for spring files. <laughs> in those, there was a single, I don't have an example here, there was a single paper file for every single manuscript. And inside that file, you know, some were very thin, some just because of the paper, that's kind of, I, I really almost want to give an archaeological excavation into um, the, the the nature of this work, like you had Emma's handwritten notes on jotters, you know, lined jotters. You had Ian Doyle's uh, notes. You had John's typed out in that very thin typing paper. I don't know if people uh, recall what I'm talking about. Um, and then it was it became my job in relation to the uh, Index of Middle English Prose, which is a parallel project and um, part of the Boydell and Brewer series in which we're trying to catalogue every single item of Middle English Prose, as the name of the lid says, uh, across the world. So it became my job then to uh, use that information as was warranted, but also to check. And I think that was the great advantage, John, that we were both checking uh, transcripts um, several times. Like I would have checked John's or Emma's and then he would have checked mine again. So there was that, and sometimes you'd have a conversation because there's some words um, that really kind of remain a little bit uh, tricky despite one's best efforts. So there was that wonderful sense of, um, I often felt kind of in awe of this box of material that was 20 or 30 years old and just also represented all the different ways in which we gathered data and recorded data and how it has all changed. And let me add that in the last two or three years, we're now even using our camera phones. I'd often do that is, you know, because I'm, I'm at that last stage of kind of checking just in case we've missed something and doing in for the Middle English prose. And I just take a quick picture and then I go home and do my processing. So those hours of long time that was described kind of moved on from that, um, as it were. I, I have something else I might say, but John, you want to jump in at that at this moment. Um, can you hear me? Yes, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you should put, um, you should talk about old boxes and put a date on things like 30 years or whatever it was. Um, because the, the feature of this catalogue, as far as I'm concerned, is that it went on forever. And um, I did a certain amount of work in the 1980s on it. Um, but 
I'm, I'm not a natural cataloger, I think. Um, I, I've got one, um, I suppose, flaw. And, and that is that I tend to get interested in individual manuscripts. And if you're doing a catalogue, you can't do that. You, 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 you have to give everyone the same kind of attention, whether it's one that you uh, like or can, can use, or, or, or whether it's uh, something that you're not particularly um, au fait with. Uh, but nevertheless, you have to make an attempt to, to, um, to describe it. And so um, the progress on this was, was very stuttering because not only did I uh, have a teaching function and, and as it turned out, a, a quite major um, uh, administrative function at various times, but I had other books to write. And I have to say, there were, there were books I enjoyed writing much more than I enjoyed doing a catalogue. Um, um, the catalogue, you need to know a lot and you need perseverance and you need uh, constant alertness, but you're never going to strike, strike on, or, or at least I, I never did, uh, strike on a um, a significant intellectual idea, as you might do if you if you were uh, studying um, uh, poems or uh, studying chronicles and, and so on. So, um, doing the catalogue was something I, I had to, in a sense, force myself to do, because after a good many years of hoping somebody else would do it. Um, I realised if it if it was going to be done, it had to be me, um, and I was fortunate in having you and Emma to 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 help me. Um, it's um, significant. I, I, I think that I I, I didn't um, I didn't uh, finish it until I was seventy nine years old, <laughs> and, uh, and I put it off as long as I could. And and yes, I kind of think that has its advantages, John. There's a bit of feedback. Um, because, for example, um, I mentioned earlier this sense of your breadth and range of knowledge. Um, and sometimes the poem by Oliver Smith is a goldsmith used to come to mind that one small head. Uh, could, what's the line, that one small head could carry all he knew, okay? Um, but I, I give it as, a, as an example of that, um, more recently together we've been looking at one of the manuscripts, that kind of coming in closer to look at a manuscript that often happens uh, that you're attracted to um, in the process of cataloging. And I'm talking about TCD 352. And at some stage, I know Margaret Connolly has written on this, etc. We've identified the some a lot of the Middle English uh, religious material that's in it. And it became apparent at some stage that this manuscript also contained 
printed material from the uh, 1550s, maybe 1560s, uh, material that would have been, for those of you who are working in the, the, the recusant period or the 16th century, would recognize as material out of the jewel harding. I was kind of looking at John going, what are we going to do about this? Like, what do I know about this? I've kind of stumbled on some of the names. I can kind of do a general search. And I'm deliberately showing this picture because I want to reassure him I still have his book. John turns to me and he tells me he was involved in a catalogue of print materials in Antwerp, uh, specifically around the religious conflicts of the 16th century, and hands over this book which becomes enormously useful uh, as we try to catalogue and write up and research further on that particular manuscript. But I, I'm showing you the book, John, I still have it. Okay, I'm minding it. Um, but the other side of it is that it's just that breath is there. So maybe there's a certain advantage to the longevity um, of the project, you know, that you've bumped into and encountered uh, other things as, as we went. And of course, part of what I would say there as well is that how the research and certain elements of the stuff that we were looking at has changed and improved um, and developed. For example, the Wycliffe Bibles, there's a whole load of material uh, that has emerged thanks to the work of Salopova and Dove and Polig, etc., um, that has completely sort of shifted or maybe not completely, but has nuanced or shifted our understanding uh, of those manuscripts um, in the last decade, I would say, maybe even, even the last six or seven years. So I suppose there's a certain advantage to the longevity, I suppose the disadvantage is that you always are anxious that you're going to have to catch up again um, if you leave it go for, for too long. Um, so Mark, I don't know that, they're kind of my reflections um, on the process. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to come in there, if John wants to say anything else. And I think we, we may maybe move on to thinking about the, the future um, possibilities that having this wonderful catalogue uh, creates. Um, and one of the things that we had earmarked that we might talk about is, is the role of digitization um, in also facilitating access and how digitization and the catalogue might work in tandem. And we've had a question on that topic by um, from Margaret Connolly um, asking about how digitization is proceeding and, and uh, four of the manuscripts in the catalogue uh, were digitized um, three or four years ago as part of the Beyond the Book of Kells project um, and another three will be digitized as current as part of the current Carnegie funded manuscripts for medieval studies project so those are 174 which is the one with the Salisbury ex libris which both Emma and I have mentioned 270 which is a collection of Latin grammatical texts but with glosses in French and English and also that little lyric that was used in promoting today's event and uh, 519 um, which is a copy of Benedict Burr's um, translation of the Distichs of Cato. So there's, there's three more and, and there's going to be a kind of phased, hopefully, uh, digitization of everything. So we can look forward to a stage when everything will be available digitally. Uh, Neve, though, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about um, MS-71 and the fact that some fragments of that have been identified in the Beinecke and that with IIIF there might be the possibility of reuniting these two things digitally. Yeah, that's a conversation that emerged only, I think, I, I was checking my email, I think it was 2018, gosh, time flies by, um, that there are, you know, the usual thing, there are um, a couple of letters missing, you know, decorated initials missing from the beginning of um, the sections of the, the Psalter. And uh, at some stage, I think we've known for a while that those letters had turned up uh, as two 
folios in the Beniki collection. Uh, I think it's Beniki 163. And I know that there was talk at some stage that people might actually uh, work towards reuniting the initials with the manuscript digitally uh, at some stage. And you know, there, there's a certain, um, certain value to that. Um, even though I think that we can kind of always use our imagination as well around these things. And I'm sure as work on fragments continues, there will be more and more of these things turning up. Um, as, 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 as some of you will know, like I, I'm dabbling in the area of fragments as well, uh, less to do with Trinity, more to do with marshes. And I'm sure that some of these things will turn up in Fragmentarium um, and in the other databases of fragments that, that are around the world um, and help us to advance our understanding, not only, I think, of the manuscripts, but related to a question that Eva asked there in the question and answer, if I may, also about the how and the why, something that Margaret Conley has started to think about, the how and the why of fragment, which is it as a verb for a minute, a fragment. Okay, um, I think that there's a certain value to considering that as well. And, and might I address Eve's question as something of further research, um, Eve, it has occurred to me, because certainly in my own sort of field of study, it seems to me that there's a growing interest in the coming together, the acquisition, the collecting of manuscripts. I think Eve, we're very aware of, we are looking at this collection through a prism of collectors. Um, decisions were made along the way. People like John, John, I mightn't be quite right if I've got the right collector or the right librarian when I say this. Is it John Lyons deciding to reorganize the whole collection um, and almost um, redistribute stuff that had been uh, in what between the covers of, of one codex, as it were, and then decided they might belong better uh, in another uh, series. So like, there's a whole load of uh, questions there that we have to ask ourselves, not just about the original coming together of the collection, uh, which is partly through Usher and partly through later donations. And of course, it sets up for us the fact that Usher was well known in the bibliophile world. Um, the likes of William Camden, Robert, Robert Cotton, etc. He was communicating with those. They were swapping books, sharing books all the time. Um, and there's, sorry, I had one other point around that that I wanted to make. Uh, it slipped away from me. Um, but just all the intervening years, the understanding of the collection in the intervening years, um, and even the very understanding of the fact that the collection almost comes to us by accident, that it was the intervention of Cromwell, uh, who wanted the collection to come back to Dublin for the purposes of a public library. Um, and then that history intervened, Cromwell falls out of favour, and it was the um, actions of Charles II who insisted that the collection go back to um, go back to, to Trinity at some stage. So I've kind of answered a couple of different things there, Mark. I've kind of around a little bit, both from in terms of the digital thing, but also in relation to uh, studying more about the collection itself. I know the point I wanted to make, Elizabeth Ann Boren. It's good to connect up research. And of course we have the work of Elizabeth Ann Boren, her collection of letters. Um, and I think maybe, maybe, maybe there's more where I've certainly consulted those over the last few years to see, can I find out a little bit more about the distribution of the manuscripts. Thanks, Neve. Uh, so one of the things this catalog is undoubtedly going to do is facilitate more research and help help us shape uh, the questions we might ask of this material better. Uh, I also wanted though, to touch on the implications and possibilities it creates for teaching. And, and I think Brendan was going to say something about this in particular. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Niamh has given a, such a, a fantastic overview of, of all of these research possibilities and that, that kind of uh, possibility for kind of partnerships and, and future developments. And of course, um, the, the, the research question is, is, is also connected to uh, uh, the teaching, the teaching question. And I know, Mark, you've, you've been doing some, uh, some wonderful work through the, uh, the MPhil in medieval studies uh, in, in terms of kind of embedding the use of, of some of these manuscripts in teaching at kind of postgraduate level. And, and I think there's an awful lot more that, that, that you know, we're, we're going to be doing over, over the coming uh, years at postgraduate level. But there's also some really interesting uh, things that, that are happening at, um, at, at undergraduate level here in, in college. So uh, Mark was, was very involved in, in setting up a, a kind of open collections um, uh, model for the capstone project in, in college. And we've had some very interesting work already by young scholars like Izzy Howard working on manuscript 432. And it's so interesting to compare, say, say the, some of the kind of uh, outward facing work that she's done with kind of blog posts etc on that with work that people like Raluca Radulescu have, have done on that that manuscript and I suppose one last thing I just want to, to touch on is the uh, the value really of of this collection across the spectrum for teaching so not just in terms of uh, PhD work or master's work or even sophistry level work but I, I just want to particularly highlight um, the work that colleagues like uh, for example Anna Shahood has been been doing on the the um, Trinity elective um, on uh, the Trinity elective that is being uh, run really for our, our fresher students uh, through the manuscript print and book culture uh, research strand in the in the long room hub and that that uh, that uh, elective is called a world to discover travel memoirs and memorabilia in the, the library and it highlights all sorts of wonderful things in in the collection and including one thing that I like to touch on when I talk about um, um, uh, Mandeville's travels and they talk about kind of medieval travel narratives and, and, and just even seeing the, uh, the description there about uh, manuscript 604 we really get that kind of reminder really of this tremendous world that there is to discover in this uh, collection uh, and, and of, of texts in, in Middle English and, and, and Old English as well. So just a couple of small uh, comments there but Mark you might have other, other thoughts as well on that. No, I think I think you've you've really covered the range of possibilities here across all the levels from under undergraduates, and it would be second year undergraduates not necessarily studying English. You might do this Trinity elective, and so get to experience manuscripts that way through to uh, students on the MPhil and medieval studies, through to PhD students, through to um, European uh, students visiting Trinity uh, as part of uh, an Erasmus uh, program or something like that. The, the range of work it facilitates is, is truly amazing. Um, we're going to move to questions now, but I want to just pick up one of the, the um, comments in the questions from Paul Schaffner, who's the editor of the Middle English Dictionary, as an illustration of the impact this catalogue is already having uh, in saying that he received his copy of the catalogue a month ago, read it straight through and is now redating quotations in the Middle English Dictionary and, and thereby the Oxford English Dictionary using John's research. So that's having a very tangible and immediate effect on the way we understand um, the Middle English language and indeed the history of the English language more broadly. Uh, I'd ideally like to bring John in though to answer um, some of the questions and, and as it were to have effectively the last word. Um, so Francesca, if you could maybe unmute John again, that would be very helpful. Uh, and the, the question I was particularly going to um, 
forward to John was one from um, James Morrie about uh, Irish uh, manuscripts written in Ireland in the collection. So he mentions Harley 913, which of course is in the British Library as a manuscript actually written in Ireland. Uh, are there any manuscripts written in Ireland in the collection you wanted to say something about, John? Well, there, the, 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 there are some. I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a copy of um, Merck's Festival, for example, um, which was um, which was which it can be established on dialectal grounds was was written in um, uh, in Ireland. Um, there was a, uh, an, an, another one, um, and I've forgotten its number. Um, it's, it's a Latin one, which has got uh, a couple of fragments of uh, lyrics em embedded in it. And um, uh, I... I um, when, when I finished this catalogue, I, I actually didn't want to look at another manuscript for a good while. But um, I, 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 found, I found, uh, I find that um, since, since I finished the catalogue, um, despite um, wanting to um, leave all this kind of thing behind, I, I've actually published three articles on manuscripts on the, on these on these manuscripts and um uh one one of, one of the ones was was uh, was um this one with a couple of pieces of uh, anti-feminist lyric embedded in the, the the latin of it um and uh, um they are very close to um uh, lines from lines in the opening of Chaucer's Shipman's Tale, uh, when the uh, merchant's wife is is justifying her uh, infidelity, and and um, I I wrote this piece up for the Chaucer Review, but the point about the manuscript is that the manuscript never left Ireland. Uh, we, we can we can we can um, track it, and and it it never left left Ireland. There are names on it which um, which indicate it it stayed in Ireland. Now, Chaucer cannot have known this manuscript, but what it does indicate is that there was somehow somehow a poem out there which may exist in the manuscript which he did have access to. So you get um you 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 get um you get manuscripts which you which you can demonstrate were, were written in Ireland, but that's not the whole story, you know. <laughs> and 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 the, 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 there may be implications. The two fragments of, of lyric are, are not known in any other manuscript. But if Chaucer did know them, there must have been another manuscript in England somewhere that he did have access to. Uh, and so things like that turn up, you know. Thanks, thanks, John. 
Um, so we're, we're coming up to, to two o'clock, so I think I should probably um, wrap things up. Um, we are, we're here to celebrate the publication of, of the catalogue um, by John and, and by Neve and by Emma. Um, and it's wonderful that, that John um, have jo has joined us uh, to talk about it and that Neve and Brendan have been able to be here to talk with me through um, some of its uh, the, the amazing things it will facilitate. Um, I'll draw your attention again to the fact that there is a, a discount so that you can get your own copy for just 40 euros. Uh, it's really uh, an extraordinarily beautiful book um, with I think 12 color plates, 16 color plates uh, in the middle, um, illustrating some of the most interesting things from the collection, uh, 350 pages. So it's an extraordinary advance on the Abbott catalog if, if you're familiar with that and have used its one line descriptions of particular manuscripts, you're going to be dazzled by the detail that's available here. Um, so uh, thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Neve. Um, John, would you like the last word? Um, all, all, all that I can say is, is that uh, usually I, I, I finish books with a sense of elation. But I finished this one with a, a sense of relief, I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> and um, because it had gone on so long and and it uh, had grown so big, and it's so um, has to has to be so so detailed. Um, uh, but. Um, what I'd like to say is, um, I, I, I thank you all for um, for talking about it. Um, and uh, although I'm um, coming towards the end of my um, interest in, in in manuscripts, probably except for helping Neve out on the IMEP volume, it's quite clear just hearing the three of you talk that. Um, at, uh, and 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 Emma as well when she when she when she comes back uh, from Seattle, um, it's it's quite clear medieval studies are in uh, in, in good hands, and I, I thank you all for it. Thank you very much, John, and uh, thank you to everyone for coming. Um, and we will we'll wrap it up here. Do get yourselves a copy of the book and do. When the library reopens, come and look at some of these manuscripts. They are wonderful things. Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.